Welcome to the teaching ministry of Reverend JFK Mensah, a seasoned Bible teacher with over 40 years of ministry experience. He is a pastor, a church planter, a missionary, and an international conference speaker. He is passionate about making Christ-like disciples worldwide. JFK Mensah is the General Overseer of Great Commission Church International. May you be transformed as you listen to the Word of God. It's a joy to be with you. So I want to go slowly. I want to explain apologetics. Then I want us to delve into the subject of the existence of God so that we can answer the questions. So, what do we mean when we talk about Christianities? The term has come straight out of First Peter chapter 3 verse 15. First Peter chapter 3 verse 15. It says you should honor the Lord God in your heart and always be ready with an answer to explain to those who ask you the reason for the faith that is in you. And the Greek word used for answering and giving a reasonable defense of what you believe is apologia. Apologia is giving an answer, a reasoned discourse to defend why you believe what you believe. Apologetics has four big branches. The first branch answers why you believe what you believe. The second branch is answering objections to why you believe what you believe. Then the third branch is punching holes in people who believe differently from what you believe. And the final and fourth branch of apologetics is trying to give a defense for why 
other positions than what we hold is clearly wrong. So, you ask, why is apologetics important for the Christian? Number one, the doubting Thomas. There are people who have come to believe in Christ, but their faith is not strong. It needs evidence, proof to persuade them, to convince them. And we normally use the example of Thomas. In John chapter 20, from verse 19, we see that when Jesus rose from the dead, the first Sunday, he appeared to the apostles, but Thomas was not among them. And when the others tried to convince Thomas that they had seen the Lord, he refused to believe. He wanted to see Jesus for himself and put his finger into his nail prints and his palm into the side of Jesus before he would believe. And so when Jesus appeared the second time, he called Thomas. And John 20, 28 is famous because Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, now you believe because you have sinned. Blessed rather are those who have not sinned and yet they believe. So there are Thomases among Christians and they need evidence. They need a little more concrete proof, a little more defense, persuasion, argument for them to, you know, to be strengthened in their faith. The second reason why apologetics is important It's because of the second generation Christians we have. We have people who have been born into Christian homes. They know all the right answers. They've grown up Christian as a culture. But they do not have convictions. A conviction is a persuasion, an unshakable belief that you have no need for further proof or evidence, but you are ready to die for. That's what we call a conviction. A lot of Christians born in Christian homes have no convictions. They believe what their parents told them, but it is untested proof as far as they are concerned. So, about two-thirds of Christian 
students, when they get to the university, in the first year, they lose their faith. Because they believe those things, because their parents said so, not because they themselves have any convictions. And in this 21st century, we need convictions. In our homes, all parents need to be able to argue, to reason, to show evidence, proof why they believe what they believe seriously enough for their children to grow up with an answer for the outside world. The third reason why we need apologetics is the unbelieving watching world. The unbelieving watching world needs proof, needs concrete evidence to buy into what we say we believe. Not every one of them will be convinced. Because First Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 says that the spiritual things are foolishness to the unspiritual man. He cannot discern them because they are, they are spiritually discerned. He is he, not able to know them. And Second Corinthians 4.4 4 says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that the light of the gospel will not shine to them. But the burden of convincing them is on us so that we provide sufficient proof for them. But the fourth and final reason why apologetics is important is for your own confidence, your own boldness. When you meet your friends at work, at school, in the marketplace, fellow professionals, they all think you are dumb, you are stupid, you, you are silly for believing the things you believe. And every day you come back and you are beaten because you, you are not able to articulate to them, why you believe what you believe. But with apologetics, you are able to reason out, convince yourself to a point where even if they do not understand you fully, you can reason and point out to them why you believe what you believe. These are the four major reasons why Christian apologetics will always take center stage. I have heard and read of the church in Europe during the enlightenment of the 1800s the church ran into the chapel 
and hid itself from enlightenment, from knowledge, from scientific facts. The church had no answer for science. And with that, all the scientists, the philosophers, began to wax bold and call religion the opium of the people. My my niece, when I asked her what is faith, she said faith is trying very hard to believe what you know is not true. That's her definition. She felt that, well, I, I know this is not true, but, you know, faith means I have to believe it. So I try. But that's not faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So there is a substance. There is an undergirding to faith, which is concrete. But it is not, you don't see it. And because you do not see it, anybody who doesn't see it feels you are being driven by something which does not exist. So this journey into apologetics is to make sure that we have reason to believe what we believe, strong enough to move ahead and assure ourselves in the midst of unbelief that we can hold on to truth. Look at Noah. When he was building the ark for the flood, everybody around him thought he was crazy. But when the flood came, there was tangible evidence now. But it was too late. So, the topics we are going to consider under apologetics, we will be taking them and trying to reason with them, answer the questions, explore the possibilities until we are satisfied enough that we have a reason to believe what we believe. Thank you very much. Now, the existence of God. The question we are facing today is, does God exist? So, this is the way I intend to attack it. First of all, I want to speak to the Christian's position why we believe that God exists. Then we want to argue from the position of the atheist, the agnostic, and the non-religious. And answer any other questions left. Okay, from the Christian's position, one, 
the definition of God by the Christian is that he is the invisible, uncreated creator, sustainer, ruler, and judge of the universe. The Christian God is the invisible, uncreated creator and sustainer and judge of the whole universe. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible does not apologize for the existence of God. The Bible introduces God in Genesis chapter 1, 31 verses, and God is mentioned 30 times. God created, God made, God saw, God said 30 times. So, the Bible does not bother to prove that God exists. Number two, the Bible explains that it is the fool who has said in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 10 verse 4. Psalm 14 verse 1. Psalm 53 verse 1. They all declare that it is the fool, the proud, the sinner, the wicked who in his heart says there is no God. The third thing the Bible points out is that God has given enough evidence of his existence to cause man to be satisfied. How? Genesis 1, 26 and 27 and God said, let us make man in our own image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over all. And God created man in his own image. In the likeness of God created he man. Male and female created he them. From the first chapter of the Bible, the Bible explains that not only does God exist, but that man is the image and likeness and reflection of God. This means that God is trying to say mankind has only meaning and fulfillment 
when he sees himself as an image of a supreme being greater than himself. Then creation in Psalm 19 from verse 1 the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament itself is evidence of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 1 from verse 18 to 20, Paul says that what can be known about God, his power, his Godhead, is very plain, open, because of creation. The sun, the moon, the stars, the oceans, the mountains, the valleys, the rivers, the trees, the animals, they, they point to a supreme intelligence. And so, man who claims there is no God is without excuse because he is suppressing the truth. Now, the third area the Bible deals with is the issue of conscience, the knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong. In Romans chapter 2, from verse 14 to 16, Paul explains that even Gentiles who don't have the Bible, when they do what is good or what is evil, there is a policeman in them which is called conscience, which excuses or condemns you. A knowing insight. Theologians call it the moral argument. Now, because of that, even before the Bible comes to a tribe, they themselves know that murder is wrong. They, they know that collecting somebody's wife in adultery is wrong. Their consciences accuse or excuse them when they do what is right or wrong. The Bible's position is that God is a God who hides himself. Isaiah 45 verse 15 and Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 13 says, you will seek me and find me if you seek me with all your heart. God is saying that 
I, I don't even show myself to just anybody. I only show myself to people who have enough interest in coming close to me. James chapter 4 verse 8 says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things he has revealed are for us and our children to keep. This means that you can't just dare God. That God, if you exist, if you are there, I'm giving you five minutes. Kill me. If you don't kill me, then you don't exist. God doesn't answer such foolish prayers. If you seek him with all your heart, you find him. If you dare him in unbelief, he watches you. Because he has given enough proof. But that brings me to my most important Christian apologetic for the existence of God. Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 17 verses 30 and 31 Paul was speaking to the Athenians and he said the times of ignorance God overlooked. He winked at. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has given proof of the man who is going to judge the whole world by raising him from the dead. That passage means that the greatest evidence heaven has given to human beings of God's existence is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This means that If you examine the facts of Jesus' crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the empty tomb, and the eyewitness account of the people who saw Jesus after his resurrection, plus the effect upon the immediate followers of Jesus, which has raised Christianity against the Roman 
empire's persecution and the Jewish authorities' determination to stamp out Christianity. For Christianity today to be the world's largest religion, 33%, then heaven says, well, if you cannot believe that, then nothing can convince you. And in Luke chapter 16, we have the rich man of Lazarus addressing Father Abraham after death that he should send Lazarus back to his father's house because he has five brothers for Lazarus to go and speak to them. And Father Abraham told him, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible. And he said, no. If they see somebody risen from the dead, coming to convince them, they will believe. And Father Abraham told him that. If they do not believe Moses and the prophets, even if somebody rises from the dead, he will not be able to persuade them. So, the Christian argument is highlighted by personal conversion stories. How did Paul, who was persecuting the church on the Damascus road, become a church planter? And the one who wrote half of the books of the New Testament. Then is the story of multitudes, including myself. I come from the Volta region of Ghana. And that region is well known for dabbling in voodoo, in juju, in witchcraft, and evil spirits. So because of that, when I came to accept Jesus as my Lord and personal Savior, the change in my personal life is the Greatest evidence, the fact that after I became a Christian for over 40, next year will be 50 years, I stopped masturbation and have never gone back. The fact that I was chasing ladies and fornicating. But when I accepted Jesus Christ, I stayed eight years, passed through university. I was engaged to my, my wife for four and a half years. I never kissed her, never got involved in it. And I've been married now 41 years. And I've never cheated on my wife. How do you explain it? 
How do you explain it? So, in addition to that, this is my 43rd year of pastoring. I have cast out evil spirits from people and seen the manifestation of these spirits. I have prayed for people to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and I have seen the evidence. I don't need a scientist to tell me that there is God. Why? I am aware that no scientific instrument, no tool of science can examine spirits. No tool of science can weigh love and the supernatural. Science is ill-equipped to deal with things that go beyond the grave. The phenomena which is supernatural cannot be examined. You can't use litmus, litmus test to test whether there is life after death or not. So science breaks down when you have to, to, to examine topics like the existence of God. So, personal experience gives a conviction which goes beyond what science cannot measure into the realm of the unseen. If I only hold on to science, what do I do after death? It makes life meaningless. And it explains why people consider suicide because they, they, there is nothing to hope for. I need more faith to believe evolution than creation in the Bible. Because the little science I have done shows that Evolution theory breaks all the rules, both for the macroevolution and even microevolution. If science says, prove to me that God exists, I say, okay, show me one evidence of a monkey becoming a human being in the past 2,000 years. There is no evidence. If, if, you, if I see a monkey in the process of becoming a human being, then I can believe evolution. What I am saying is that scientific proof for a monkey becoming a human being is difficult to even imagine. There is no evidence on any continent anywhere. But you want me to believe evolution. And you laugh. That I believe the Bible. Creation is more plausible. Why? I, my personal experiences with this gentleman called Jesus Christ 
and the results in my personal life are unshakable evidence to me as a human being. When I talk about reality, I don't need 100% proof that this chair is strong enough to sit on. So every chair I want to sit on, I lift it, I look at the legs, I shake before I sit on. No, nobody does that. You enter a taxi and say, okay, taxi driver, can I see your driving license? For how long have you been driving? Uh, Yes, the bus and the train, you check to see how long they have been driving. Nobody does that. Your wife cooks for you, then you test it to see whether it's poisoned or not before you eat. Nobody does that. Because all sane human beings have come to a point where they agree that you don't need 100% proof of something before you believe it works. You don't. You go to the bank and you put your money there. How much evidence do you call for from the bank before you put your money there? So, to argue from the Christian's point of view, we need three things. First, We need to assemble our facts properly, biblically, and reasonably. Number two, the first Peter 3.15 explains that we need to do it in humility and out of love. Because once you enter apologetics, you can begin to get rough and just want to win an argument without winning a soul. And at the end of the day, doesn't profit anybody. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he said, when I came among you, I decided not to know anything except Christ and him crucified. Because if I start arguing and using the wisdom of men, Your faith will rest in the wisdom of men rather than in the power of God. So I use the demonstration of the Holy Spirit so that your faith will rest in the power of God and the wisdom of God. But in addition to that, as Christians in apologetics, we need to be careful that we do not major on the minors. There are certain things more important in life than doing apologetics about the small details which take our time, but in the long run, they they don't contribute so much. They are not weightier matters. And we can easily be detracted 
You can spend your whole life trying to prove, you know, some non-essential little doctrinal detail to an unbeliever who in the long run is not even interested in changing. I remember when I was doing Hebrew, there was a Jew in my class. Then when we closed, I approached him and I started sharing the gospel with him. Then he said, I'm a Jew. So I said, have you considered the resurrection of Jesus Christ? He said, no. So I said, please, why? He said, the implications are too much for me to handle. And he left me. There are people who are not interested in changing. No matter how much evidence you provide, they will just not believe. They are not interested. And they can just waste your whole life. Because you are trying to convince them, they fall into several categories. You see, the agnostic says, I don't know whether God exists or not. And I don't even care. I don't want to know. So, you can spend your whole life trying to assemble arguments, teleological, cosmological argument, moral argument, and he does not want to know. But there are also people who are agnostic because they are genuinely searching. If if you provide sufficient evidence, they will bow and say, okay, okay, and draw closer. First Peter chapter 2, verse 3 says, you can taste to see that the Lord is good. Then there are atheists who say, for me, there is no God. Why do you say there is no God? I have made up my mind. There is no God. So you can spend a whole month on that person and it will come to nothing because he has taken an entrenched position. So my point is this. We are not doing apologetics for people who have taken entrenched position. We pray for them, but we wouldn't spend our time with them. Why? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 11, that when you are going to preach, you enter in a town, search for somebody who is worthy. He said in Luke, Chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, when he was instructing the 70, he said, when you enter any house, say, peace be to this house. If there is a man of peace in that house, your peace will come upon you. If not, your peace will come back to you. When you go to any city, 
and they don't want to receive the gospel, get out of the city and shake the dust off your sandals and move to another city. As Christians, we can waste our lives just doing apologetics to the wrong kinds of people. But there are men and women of peace. There are men and women who are worthy. John chapter 6, verse 44 and 45, Jesus said that nobody can come to me, the son, except the father draws him. He said anyone who has listened to the father and has been taught by the father comes to me. Because it is written, your sons shall all be taught by the Lord. So John 6.65, he said, no one can come to me except the Father draws him, enables him. So we are well aware. And the more you read the scriptures, you come across Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, when he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before. Now, these are the undergirding facts for Christians involved in apologetics. Does God exist? From the Christian standpoint, yes. Has he made any effort for the people who do not know him to know him? From the biblical standpoint, yes. His trump card is Jesus Christ and his resurrection. The things which bolster it, creation and Conscience. So, let me spend just a minute to talk from the angle of those who do not believe that God exists. Four things. Number one is pray for them. Start by praying for them. Number two, befriend them. Show genuine interest in them. If you do that, you will be able to understand where they are coming from. Is it a past experience? Of suffering which has made them bitter against God? Is it a disappointment? Is it a frustration that God, my mother was sick, you did not heal her, she died. Therefore, there is no God. I don't want to believe that there is any God. Or if there is a good God, why does he allow so much suffering? That's it. 
as you befriend the person, these things begin to come, come out. And your genuine interest in the person begins to build a relationship. And your life can impact them. Then it opens them to hear the gospel. Now, the final step is once the person opens up enough, allow God's Holy Spirit to deal with the person enough for a transformation. No Christian can change anybody. It is the Holy Spirit who causes the new birth. And he convicts John 16, verse 8 to 11. He convicts of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. There are a lot of people who do not even believe that they are sinners. You can't convince them. But the Holy Spirit can press sin to them. Then, righteousness and judgment. I want to stop here for the sake of the questions. I have tried to explain what apologetics is all about and why it is important for the Christian. I have also labored to show you the existence of God from the biblical the Christian standpoint. And at the tail end, I have tried to, to break, stratify the camp of the atheist, the agnostic, the taste for you. I have not taking it up to prove to any unbeliever that God exists. For a start, our apologetics must be aimed at the Christian. When he is strong, he can face the world. God bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the first question is, is the Bible the only way to prove the existence of God? Please know. Psalm 19, verse 1 and 2, and the Romans 1, 18 to 20, say that creation, creation, nature, Till now, NASA has not been able to tell us how many solar systems there are. Each time they apologize that the universe seems to be expanding. That's not the Bible. That's nature. So the Bible is not the only way. 
but the specifics are with the Bible. Thank you. Thank you, Apostle. Uh, so, next question is, if God exists, where does he live? And where can we find him if he is truly real? Thank you. The answer to that question is, science only works with time, space, matter, wits. But the person who created time, space, matter, necessarily lives beyond it and above it. So Second Peter chapter 3 verse 8 says, a thousand years is like one day before God. And one day is like a thousand years before God. Just to show that he lives outside time. That's eternity. So, if you ask me where does God live, I would say where Jesus is gone. <laughs> you see? But at the same time, the Bible says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house can you build for me? Acts chapter 7 from verse 48 to 50. So, God spans the universe, but he's bigger than the universe he created. And because it, where he lives is a spiritual kingdom. John chapter 4 verse 23 and 24 says, God is spirit. God is pure spirit. So where he lives is inaccessible to scientific instruments. So you cannot describe it geographically that God lives left or right. I hope that answer is good enough. Thank you. Thank you, Apostle. Uh, so we'll move on to the next question. The, ne- the next question says that what does the Bible mean to say we are created in the image of God, male and female, he created them? Now, the image of God in man is that we have God's moral attributes. God loves. Man can love. God is kind. Man can be kind. God is just. Man can be just. God is truthful. God is holy. Man, so we reflect the moral attributes that God has. But there are certain attributes of God which he hasn't given us. For example, God is eternal. God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere at the same time. God is all-knowing. God knows everything about everything, every time, without going to school. God is all-powerful. 
These are attributes of God which we don't have. But we have a, the reflection of his moral attributes. That's what the Bible means by man in the image of God. Yes. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Apostle. Um, the next question is, how can I be a better friend to my unsaved friends without being influenced by them? Is it wrong to continue friendship with such people? You befriend friendship. So Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. A yoke is a wooden instrument that locks two animals together so that they can work together. So, whenever you are working with any unbeliever, you have to be careful not to lock yourself with the person so that you are unequally yoked. But carry on a friendship which is driven by your desire to see the person come over to know Jesus as Lord and personal Savior. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Apostle. Uh, the next question is, please, to what point, as a believer, should you defend the faith you have, you have according to Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15? Is it, is it that a responsibility or not? It is a conviction which makes it a responsibility. If you cannot defend the faith, you cannot defend what you believe. Jude verse 3 says, I'm writing to you to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to us. If you cannot defend the faith, you are losing the, the battle. And you are not only losing the battle, you are losing it for the next generation. You are losing it for the next Christian because you are giving people the impression that our faith has no defense or we just believe. We are not sure of what we believe. So I will plead with every one of you to vigorously begin a journey of convincing yourself about the things we are talking about so that you can be in a position to convince the others. Yes. All right. Thank you, Apostle. Uh, The next question is, what practical ways can we befriend unbelievers without becoming worldly? Yes. That's also a strong point. I think any friendship that is making you worldly, you have to disengage from it. That's it. So if you were a prostitute and you became born again, and you just go back to your uh, friends 
among the prostitutes, you will, you will sink. You need to get out, make friends with Christians who are in victory, stand, then you can help them to out. That's it. Right. Thank you, Apostle. I think there is one more question here. And, and it says, if God exists, how and where can we find him? The, the only presence of God is that God is everywhere present at the same time. If there is any little spot on this earth or in the universe where God's presence is not felt, then God has lost control as God over the world he created. So, Proverbs chapter 15 verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching over the good and the evil. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 and 24. He says, can anyone hide himself in secret places that I will not see him? Am I a God at hand and not a God afar off? Psalm 139, verse 7. He says, whither shall I flee from your presence? Where can I hide from your spirit? So, you don't need to search for God in the sense of his presence. In him we live and move and have our peace. Thank you, Apostle. Uh, we have another question here. That says, First Peter chapter 3, verse 19 says, Jesus went to preach in hell when he died. Based on this, can we deduce that Judas, Jezebel, and Saul or others also were saved by, by God when Jesus preached to them? No. Okay. Three reasons. The first one is that the word translated hell is Hades. And this word hell is a translation of four different words Bible words from Greek and Hebrew and it is easy to confuse what they are saying the word Gehenna is translated as hell and it is the lake of fire that is the real hell then Hades is also translated as hell. But that one is the place where the dead go. It's not yet the lake of fire. Then we have Sheol and we have Tartarus. So the easiest way to describe it it's a three-story building under the earth. If you 
If you picture it like that, you can get it. On top of the story building, we have the righteous dead. Then the middle corridor is for the wicked dead. And the bottom, which is called the bottomless pit or the abyss, is what is called Tartarus. Is where fallen angels have been chained in the blackness of darkness and for the day of judgment. So when Jesus died, and we are told he went to Hades, even though it's translated he went to hell, it is not the lake of fire. And it is not the department of the wicked dead. He went to what we call Abraham's bosom. So he told the thief on the cross, this night you will be in paradise with me. And yes, he preached, but like the Luke chapter 16 says, from verse 19 to 31, there is a gulf between the wicked dead and the righteous dead. Nobody can cross. So when Jesus went and preached in the realm of the of Hades, the dead, he was not preaching for the repentance of the angels who were chained or the wicked dead. Their faith has been sealed. But the righteous dead, they are the ones he took with them when he rose from the dead and he moved them to be with him. This is why today Paul can say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because when you die, you go to be with the Lord from this time always. So we'll come across it in eschatology, but this is a brief. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's a good call. Mm. All right, please. The next question says that if God exists and he is love, kind, etc., why are some people suffering whilst others are okay? How do we justify the love of God then? Okay. This question, for example, is coming further down. We are going to talk about it. But in brief, three factors affect suffering on this earth. Number one is that man has free will. God gave man free will. He told Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, 16, that you can eat of all the trees of this garden, but of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, don't eat. The day you eat, you will surely die. God gave man free will. So, you can't blame God when the suffering 
is self-caused. You smoke, you have lung cancer, then you say, God, if you are a good God, why am I suffering? You can't blame God for that. You drink and you are drunk and you take your car and kill a pregnant woman, then you blame God. Why do you blame him for that? Number two, there is a personal devil on this earth called Satan. And he is evil. And he is determined to paint God as evil by his evil acts and counterfeits. You, you cannot blame God for what Satan does. Look at the book of Job. Job chapter 1. Job was a righteous person. God praised Job before Satan. And look at what Satan said and did. So that's the second. But number three is that the fall of man has ushered in a lot of things which Romans chapter 8 from verse 19 to 24 says that the whole of creation is groaning because we are suffering under the fall. And this is why Jesus came. So, the question of if there is a good God, why does he allow evil or see evil, is that he chose not to make man a robot because love can never exist where robots are. Robots can never produce love. If your wife is wired as a robot, then she cannot love you. And God is a God of love. And to have love and receive love, there must be free will. And if there is free will, then the free will can be used against love. That's it. So God is love. And everything he does, he does it in love for our highest good and greatest benefit. But man has free will. And Satan is present. These make life a quadratic equation. So when something is happening, you can't just see, oh God, why do you allow this? Why do you allow this? What about man? If America chooses to ban the Bible from classrooms, why do you blame God if there is no Bible? Thank you. Follow JFK Men's Ministries on Facebook and YouTube and invite others to listen to his podcast. You can also access some of JFK Men's books and keep up with his ministry at www 
jfkmensmenistries.org. God bless you.